0: Welcome to The Q Word, a podcast about the tips, trends, and taboos of emergency nursing, where we pull the hospital curtain back on issues that emergency nurses and their patients often think about but seldom talk about. You found The Q Word Podcast.
1: We want to welcome everyone to the Region 5 Pediatric Trauma Symposium and to this episode of the Q Word Podcast. We are an emergency nursing podcast, and our tagline is that we do the tips, friends, and taboos in emergency nursing, but we welcome all who are emergency nursing adjacent as well, and we have lots of listeners who uh, fit into that category. And before we introduce our guests, just tell a little bit about us. I have an emergency nursing background. I now fly full time um, as a flight nurse, still emergency just in a different setting and scenario. So I am pre-hospital EMS now. Um, We've been doing this about three and a half years and co-host and producer is Lisa.
0: Hi, I'm Lisa. Um, I am one of the nursing adjacent uh, types of people Nisa referred to earlier. Nisa and I have been best friends since college. Um, I work at Harvard University in a completely different field up here in Cambridge, Massachusetts, but I am the producer, editor, and sort of art director for the podcast, and I represent the layperson's view. I am, uh, as her best friend and confidant, I hear a lot of stories about the ER and um, I try to represent um, your family, your friends, um, patients, anybody who is not an ER nurse or medical professional who may find um, hearing about what you do interesting.
1: And we are thrilled to be joined with a guest, and so I want to introduce Dr. Corey Maker. He is a third-year resident in trauma and general surgery at Atrium Navicent Health. He did his undergrad and also his medical school um, at Florida State University, so go to Knowles. Um, he was telling us that he's participated in multiple research projects having to do with rib fractures, also some COVID stuff, uh, recently was published, uh, Times Two, so congratulations on that. And um, ultimately, he hopes to um, pursue a career in pediatric surgery. So Dr. Nonamaker, welcome to the Keyword podcast.
2: Thank you all so much for having me. I'm uh, happy to participate, hopefully lend some insight, and certainly get some entertainment out of seeing what the kids are doing these days.
1: Yeah. And we we start off every episode that has a guest uh, by asking you, Dr. Nonamaker, when you are on shift, do you say the Q word?
2: Um, I don't. Uh, I think initially I did. I probably got yelled at enough times by you know my ER nursing colleagues uh, when I was maybe an intern. And so it's no longer a word in my lexicon, but I do have colleagues, you know, specifically the incoming kids who decide to say it at one in the morning when I'm trying to get sleep, and <laughs> they get rightfully kind of punished and berated for such things.
0: <laughs> you know, That's it,
1: right.
0: It holds true no matter how many episodes of these we go. Everybody always says they don't say it. So
1: That's right. <laughs> That's right. Well, we want to talk today about pediatric and adolescent injuries, and um, those injuries are born from TikTok challenges gone wrong.
0: Yeah, this is kind of a delivery mechanism, sort of an interesting way for us to get into talking about some common injuries you may see or that you may start seeing a lot more because of this viral platform called TikTok, which I have to admit, and Nisa, I'm going to admit it for you, we have both fallen into TikTok holes on many occasions, since it, especially over COVID. So although I haven't come across any of these in person, I was surprised to see how many are out there. That's right. So let's talk a little bit about some of these TikTok challenges. What we're going to do is go through a couple of the most popular ones that we've seen, and then Corey would like to hear from you um, as to what kind of injuries you think these would cause, um, how you would treat them, uh, how they would present themselves in the uh, in the trauma bay. What do you, Nisa? What am I missing? No, that's it. Yeah, okay.
1: Especially specifically in the pediatric population because the majority of these challenges are being done by. Uh, adolescents, um, but <laughs> adults do them too. So. Yes,
0: yes, absolutely. Okay, so the first one we're going to talk about is the milk crate challenge. This is where kids have been lining up milk crates, uh, stacking milk crates on top of each other in a sort of a single file um, pyramid fashion, and then challenging themselves to walk up that pyramid and back down again without toppling off of it. And of course, these are very unsteady. Um, and inevitably, that they, they lose their footing or the milk crates completely crumble from underneath them. And sometimes they fall from a height of three of them. Sometimes they fall from a height of 10 or 12 or even higher. So what would this look like when it came and presented itself in its trauma bay?
2: Yeah, so when I watched some of these videos, it looked like some people were getting, you know, at least maybe 10 feet up, if not higher, before they, you know, thought they were confidently going to walk back down and then crash themselves to the ground. So I think they could kind of present in in a variable different ways, depending on how high they fell, where they landed, and what they landed on. Um, So if you just had a fall from height, you know, from 10 feet, you could suffer an abundance of injuries, including intracranial injuries, head injuries, and skull fractures, Um, but certainly you could at heights of that you'd expect to suffer some forms of long bone fractures. Um, You know these could include wrist fractures, lower extremity fractures, and such, and specifically in the pediatric population these can be of concern. Um, If you fracture through a growth plate, um, they can stay open up to 17 years old and If you fracture through growth plates, um, that can kind of dramatically affect the way that a a child would grow. So you might just think, oh, you broke an arm, you're gonna get a cast and um, do fine. Your friends are gonna sign it for a while, but if you fracture through a growth plate and it's not appropriately reduced and aligned or um, isn't plated appropriately, you know, you can get asymmetry, which in your lower extremities, you can imagine having one leg longer than the other um, or even in your upper extremities as well. So certainly it's not without long-term consequence. Um, some other things that I saw in some of these videos would be that, you know, they would topple forward and maybe land with their abdomen kind of right on their abdomen, um, almost kind of like a seatbelt type of mechanism or a handlebar type of injury that we see a lot in the pediatric population, and those can cause injuries to your solid organs, like a liver laceration, which might kind of present with hypotension and tachycardia, or you could have things like duodenal hematomas and pancreatic injuries that might have to get managed, you know, with an extended hospital stay um, and even sometimes operations by, you know, as trauma surgeons. So I think this this challenge might be one of the more dangerous of them all, you know, with the variety of injuries it could cause
1: you
0: mean this is when they, because sometimes as they're falling off it, they're not making like a nice arc and then, and then you know, swan diving into the ground. A lot of times they're toppling into the milk crates themselves and are sort of bounced along the milk crates until they finally, you know, crumble onto the ground. So the the damage that the milk crates themselves are causing uh, looks like that would be something that would be very concerning too.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think it's either focused so heavily on not falling that You know, once it finally happens, they're caught off guard. They're not prepared to roll into the ground or do anything that they might do if they were jumping from the same height, like kids sometimes do. But yeah, certainly landing on those crates can cause, you know, I could see a plethora of injuries, you know, whether it's to the chest, the abdomen, or like the extremities, like I kind of mentioned.
0: Wow.
1: And can you talk about when someone is falling and they do have time to catch themselves and they sort of land? Uh, sometimes one, but uh, commonly we see both. uh, And the injury is called a foosh. Can you talk about what that is?
2: Yeah, the foosh um, or the fall on the outstretched hand. um, We see it a lot, you know, specifically in the elderly population. We deal with a lot here, you know, in an elderly person who falls forward, you know, with the rolling walker. But obviously here, you know, in a situation you can imagine just trying to brace yourself with your hands um, and you can get these distal radius fractures. Um, You know, in in kids, they'll have a growth plate there, which is just kind of a soft portion of the bone that allows the bone to continue growing out into the growth plate and fractures through that, like I mentioned earlier, um, are one, incredibly difficult to treat, require a pediatric orthopedic surgeon, which um, are, are pretty hard to come by. And then um, even with appropriate medical care, a certain percentage of them are gonna have um, long-term complications from these sorts of injuries.
1: Yeah, shortening and potentially sure. even cro- crooked limb.
2: Yep. Yeah, crooked, exactly. So if you could imagine if you fractured a growth plate, which is just this extra maybe, you know, Lego size piece of buffer from where the normal bone is to the, to the wrist joint, um, if that kind of got malaligned, and then it continued to grow. It would push your hand one direction or the other, or in the lower extremity, it would push your tibia kind of either inward or outward, depending on how it aligned. Wow.
1: Some of the other offenders that I've seen in the adolescent population that led to foosh is uh, razor scooters, hoverboards, inline wow. skates, those kind of things where it's a, it's a balancing mechanism and a kid maybe gets going too fast or on a hill, and then they, they go down on the, on the one hand or both.
2: Yeah, I yeah, absolutely could see that, and, and and they're susceptible to those injuries. They're probably going fast when they do those things, just like when you're falling from 10 feet. The acceleration you're going to get there is going to be kind of a lot, and you're going to stop quickly when you hit the ground. So.
1: Yeah. Wow.
0: All right, that's, been, that's the milk crate challenge. Nisa, what do you got for us?
1: So this next challenge is called the skull breaker challenge, and um, The danger of it for one is in the name, I think. Uh, But basically what happens is a couple of friends decide to trick a third person. So the three of them are standing next to each other, shoulder to shoulder. And they say, uh, we're just going to do a big happy jump and we're going to get it on film. But what actually happens is the middle unsuspecting person jumps while the other two on the side kick uh, each leg out from under him or her. And when they do, they're, they're caught by surprise, obviously, and then they just go and land flat onto whatever the surface is. Um, as I was looking at these, like you, um, Dr. Nanamaker, I noticed that a lot of it looks like it's in a bathroom or the hallway of the school. Uh, these are not done on carpeted surfaces. These are not done on grassy surfaces. This is tile, concrete, cement. Um, so talk about what could happen uh, in the Skull Breaker Challenge,
2: yeah. So this one, you know, particularly cruel compared to the other ones. Um, and you kind of will see the the middle the middle kid land in a variety of different ways. A lot of the videos that I watched, they would land, as the name entails, on their posterior skull. So you can imagine the plethora of injuries you could have secondary to that, like a posterior skull fracture, which you might be able to feel even pre hospital. You know, with a depressed soft spot in the posterior scalp, Um, certainly scalp hematomas. And then, you know, you obviously have to wonder what sort of intracranial injury you might have associated with that. Um, You might have things that are evident on CT imaging, like an intracranial bleed, which would most commonly be an intraparenchymal hematoma, but could also be a subdural hematoma. And then the things that we don't see on imaging, but we can see clinically, which is um, concussion and post-concussive symptoms um, and the post-concussive syndrome. Um, And so concussions aren't something that we fully understand yet. Um, We kind of have, you know, insight into what the consequences of it are though, but it's usually caused by some form of rapid acceleration and deceleration uh, injury. And your CT scan of the head would show no acute findings. But a patient might present, it, you know might present altered or somnolent. Um, and what we do know is that a single concussion may be benign, but that repeat concussions over time can cause um, long-term issues, like they talk about in um, football players and other people that play contact sports. But you could expect in the long-term post-concussion to have things like memory loss, um, difficulty concentrating, uh, headaches. So these are all things that you could see if you had kind of repeat head traumas like this.
1: Yeah, fatigue uh, and moodiness, which would be hard to hard to determine if that's just teenage behavior or if that's post-concussive syndrome.
0: Wow, you're right about this one. Just seems so cruel. Uh, uh, these are the kinds of friends you don't keep around you. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, have a good time.
2: I feel like when I was in middle school, I probably would have been the middle kid there, and so luckily we didn't have TikTok back then.
0: No. Yeah no we had pop rocks and, and and pepsi that was the extent of it yeah right <laughs>
1: um I, w- I will say that investigating the skull breaker challenge i did find one case where in brazil where a young lady died from her injury subsequent to the skull breaker challenge so this one rarely but but can be fatal
2: right and the other injury that that i thought i saw a few where if the kid only spun a certain amount they might land directly on their bottom into the ground and like you said this is a hard surface So you could see injuries like you would commonly see for axial loading, like if someone were to jump out of a building and land, you know, they're not going to land on their ankles in this challenge, but they'll land right on their spine. And so I could certainly see compression fractures of the spine. So you obviously have to keep a really close eye on their, um, you know, neurologic exam as y'all are bringing them in. So
1: yeah, I read one um, also firsthand report of of an 11 year old, which it's important to note that TikTok is supposed to be for users 13 and up, but that does not keep uh, uh, younger children from participating in it or being victims of it. So this 11-year-old said that when she was the victim of the skull breaker, she was knocked unconscious, and when she came to, uh, she had numbness and couldn't feel her legs or her hands. So uh, likely, maybe a spinal cord swelling injury, something like that.
2: Yeah, it could be a contusion. Um, it could be kind of like a we've seen football where it's called a stinger. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, which is just this shock type of injury to the spinal cord. Or you might have some neurologic findings associated with it. You know, they usually self-resolve if there's no sort of anatomic finding on CT scan or MRI, but, you know, you have to rule out that there's not a mechanical sort of impingement that's causing those symptoms.
1: Right. So a lot of neuro stuff with the, uh, with the skull breaker. Okay.
0: The next one we're going to talk about is the outlet penny challenge. So this is where you take one of the iPhone chargers, the big sort of square iPhone chargers, you stick it halfway into the wall outlet, and then you drop a penny in between the charger and the wall so that it it arcs, the, the copper and the penny or whatever, the metal and the penny arcs with the electrical current that's being set off by the partially plugged in charger. So this um, there's a lot of people doing this where it just basically looks like it's causing sparks, but people have been presenting in the trauma bay with it. So what do you think could happen from this?
2: Yeah, so this is a, you know, an electrical burn or conduction type of burn injury, especially if, you know, you're directly the one holding the coin that decides to touch it. I've seen videos where the kids will try to drop it onto it, and they're at least staying clear of it. Now they knock out the power in their mom's house, and I'm sure they're not happy about that. But if they're actually going to make a circuit with the electric in the wall, in their hand, um, that's when you gotta worry about electrical burns. So the current via the outlet's gonna travel um, to the next grounded source. So it'll follow through the penny into the arm and likely this person's standing on the ground and so they'll be grounded and it'll travel through the body and out through the foot. Um, The big things with these is, externally you might not see any signs of trauma you might see a small burn on the finger um, but even sometimes that you won't see and then you have to look at the site that the patient is grounded on so the foot and see if there's any sort of external signs of uh, trauma there but even with no signs of external trauma the internal damage that can be caused especially if this is a high voltage circuit can be pretty serious um so usually the uh Current will travel through muscles. So you can cause a significant amount of muscle damage anywhere between the hand and the foot. Um, and this can present in a kind of rhabdomyolysis type of situation where they'll have progressive muscle breakdown over the following day. And they can even develop compartment syndrome from the large amount of swelling that they get. And then of course, the other major muscle that's in between the foot and the leg is the heart. And so they can suffer from arrhythmia. So obviously getting a baseline EKG en route to see if they're having PVCs, if they're hemodynamically stable, or obviously to make sure that they're not going into some sort of dangerous arrhythmia, um, like VTAC and VFib. Um, in those situations, you treat the arrhythmia like you would if it was caused by any other sort of, um, you know, inciting factor with, uh, you know, symptomatic care and, and giving your beta blockers and all of that. Um, but it can kind of progress over time. And so they have to be monitored kind of in an inpatient setting. Um, and then another important thing, I think someone put it there in the comments is if someone has concern that they might have a burn, an electrical burn injury, this is someone that you're probably going to want to get up to a burn specific center so they can monitor them closely.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, I, I think if you're pre-hospital and you're treating this, or you're in the trauma bay and treating us, what you said with that the rhabdo and the kidneys would be fluids, fluids, fluids. And we talk about that with any kind of burns For electrical burns. it's even higher demand for fluids um, because of what you said, the damage is all internal. You can't see it like you can with a a thermal burn. Um, Here is a a child who did the penny challenge or the outlet challenge. And those sparks that you saw in some of the other images actually got onto his face and into his eyes and caused burns to his eyes. So he then did a PSA TikTok saying, hey, here's why you shouldn't do this challenge. Um, Can you talk about why it's important for an electrical burn to go to a burn center? In fact, it's one of the criteria, the ABA criteria for transfer for any age person uh, with an electrical burn to to go to a burn center.
2: Um, It's just incredibly dangerous. It's not something that we see commonly, you know, at a small or, you know, we're a major trauma center here, but since we don't manage it often, it's not something that we see comfortably. Um, And so managing it can be difficult. So close monitoring with aggressive fluid resuscitation, as you mentioned, while monitoring urine output, uh, monitoring cardiac um, for um, dangerous arrhythmias, and then just seeing what sort of internal organ damage that they might have, whether it's the muscles or the kidneys and whatnot, it really requires the kind of ICU level of care that you can get at a, a burn center um, that we can't necessarily manage here as as safely.
1: Right and and again with this one the, the pictures that I were seeing um, some of them did it at home but a lot of them did it in the hallway of the school and yep. and the injury occurred at school so for you school nurses, when you see something that looks like just a, a little blistering on the hand, know that this could be indication of something much, much more serious. And this patient definitely needs to be evaluated. All right,
0: and I'm, I mean, although this isn't particularly trauma related, just shout out to the fi- uh, folks that are uh, working fire and EMT here, because it, it can cause fires in the wall. Um, you know, There's some downstream potential trauma coming at you from this trick where you don't realize that you've set off a fire. and um, it can burn down a house. uh, Yeah,
1: property damage, definitely.
0: Exactly, and then injury that can come from that. So uh, yet another, um, something to keep an eye out for. Um, Nisa, how about you head up the next one?
1: All right. So this one is called the Fire Challenge, and this one has a couple of iterations. Uh, I think it originated where uh, there was a a pretty famous TikToker, and he was taking a flammable, um, flammable foam, And he was drawing things on the mirror and then he would light it and then the it would go in the shape of the heart or it would go in the shape of the square or whatever on the mirror in the dark uh and so then tiktokers would write in the comments um do a star do a circle do the letter n for nisa whatever and this tiktoker would write it on the mirror light it and then it would show up in the dark on the mirror so there were children who were injured trying to Uh, imitate that challenge, Um, but then it also went a step, another step further, and I actually picked up this patient, and um, he had burns all over. He had it down his legs, in his eyes, and on his chest, and when I said, what happened to you? He said, I lit alcohol on fire, and this was during COVID quarantine where all the kids were home from school. And I thought he meant he got into his dad's liquor cabinet. Like it was that kind of alcohol because I wasn't familiar with this challenge. And so I was like, why did you light it on fire? Are you doing some kind of elaborate flambe? Like what's happening here? Help me understand. And he said, it's a TikTok okay. challenge. say no more. So this challenge has, um, has participants convinced that you can douse your body in rubbing alcohol And when you do this, you're either in the shower or you are near a swimming pool or some kind of body of water. You douse your body with rubbing alcohol and then you either you or a a co-conspirator lights it on fire. And the the premise has been that the rubbing alcohol will burn off before it impacts your skin. But we know that that is not the case. Um, And there have been some severe, severe injuries uh, from this one. Uh, I saw reports from burn centers in Oregon, New York City, Detroit, my own patient here in the in the um, in the Georgia Atlanta area. So, um, Dr. Nana tell us about this one.
2: Yeah, this one uh, this one looks particularly dangerous. Um, I don't know who decided to spread the rumor that it was going to be safe safe doing this, but obviously, it's kind of caught on. Um, now, obviously, you know, the, the, big, the big injury you're gonna suffer here is, is surface burns. And so big things to look at is how you're staging the burn um, when you're look, evaluating the patient initially to kind of see what the extent of their burn injury is. Um, so just going through the basic staging, we know first degree is kind of a sunburn, it's just a superficial burn. Second degree is through the epidermis and so you're blistering. These are usually pretty painful and then third degrees through the skin can have that eschar over it and is often kind of painless. Some people describe it as kind of a woody texture and then anything deeper than that's the, the fourth degree burns. Um, so initially on evaluation, you want to kind of estimate how much of a burn that these kids might have on them. And, and a good way that I learned it um, when I was in medical school is you take about the size of the, of the patient's hand Their size of their hand is approximately 1% of their body surface area, Um, or you can use kind of the traditional rule of nines um, that y'all are, I'm sure, aware of. But if you just kind of take their hand and put it over the different areas, you might be able to get a good estimate as far as how much of a burn that they've suffered. Um, Like we kind of discussed earlier, um, important is fluid resuscitation, so you're not going to end up giving these kids too much fluid, so... So just kind of get it into them, um, see if they're making urine while you're in transport, and then obviously get them appropriately uh, triaged.
1: One of the Um, things that I found with my patient that had this is, as you mentioned, because the alcohol is not stable, it's liquid, but it's also... Uh, it's also evaporating. Mm-hmm. the The burn was kind of pell mell. It wasn't predictable. It was a little bit everywhere. And yeah. so the 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 um, palm method would probably be a really good one for this. And yeah. um, my my patient had burns to his eyes. He had probably total about twelve or thirteen percent, and he had one um, uh, on the back of his knee, across the back of his knee. So that meets several criteria Mm -hmm. for transfer to a burn center. Can you talk
0: about that? Yeah,
2: so the important things and criteria that we use to decide whether or not to either get someone to the burn center pre-hospital or if we have to stabilize them prior to going there. Um, So if you're first just looking at total body surface area, most of the time we say about 10%. And so that's anything second degree and up that totals up to 10%. First degree doesn't count in that algorithm. Um, Any burn that's third degree technically should go to um, a burn center. Um, Like your patient had burns to the face, hands, feet, and genitalia. Um, So kind of those high value places as well as the joints. So if you had a posterior knee burn, um, even if it's just a 1% burn and it's on the anterior posterior side of a joint, you want to get them to the appropriate folks. Chemical burns and then inhalation injuries um, are also another one that you want to get to, a you know, ABA-certified burn center.
1: And what about the long-term effects of a pediatric patient specifically with burns, with scar tissue and graftings?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: What's that yeah. going to mean for this kid?
2: Right, so the standard of care for second degree and, and higher burns is going to be debridement of the burn area, and then if it's a significant area, usually more than, you know, a few percent, they have to get skin grafted, and so Um, If they're young and they're still growing, they're gonna get burn contractures. So a skin graft is never gonna be as good as your native skin. And as you grow, it's gonna put tension on it. Um, So even if it's not over a joint, um, you'll get chronic pain. Um, You can even get deformities from kind of your body trying to grow underneath this tight skin. Um, And then if you have it near any areas that might have tension on it. So if you have a chest wall burn, um, you can get contractures of the scars there that'll lead to decreased range of motion of the shoulder joint. Obviously, if you're actually over the joints, you're gonna have contractures and those require kind of complex surgery it's usually done by burn surgeons and even plastic surgeons that work specifically with burns. Um, we call them Z-plasties and sometimes you have to just re-excise, re um, as they get larger. And so it really does become a chronic disease. Um, and then similarly, if you have burns, when you're young, you're susceptible to developing skin cancers in those spots. Um, so you can get chronic wounds at old burn sites um, that'll often be a squamous cell cancer. And so if you have a burn at a young age, you have to be monitored very closely, um, you know, in adulthood to make sure that none of those are kind of developing into cancer.
1: And and burn survivors have enough of a body image issue um, as adults, but then if you put that in, a, in an adolescent or teenage person who they're already so susceptible and, and want to fit in and want to, um, you know, be beautiful and handsome, and now you've added this this long-term burn injury to it, it's going to be very difficult for some psychosocial uh, long-term things as well. Yeah,
2: absolutely. And in, in burn centers, I actually spent some time at a burn center when I was a medical student, um, one, one of the main reasons or, you know, one of the big reasons we have to get people up there is because it does become a, a chronic issue. And it's a, you know, it's more than just the medical side. It's the social side. It's the psychological side. It's the nutrition side um, and whatnot that you have to deal with during these patients. And so it really does become a, become a kind of a big to do. And, and those burn centers have great staff. And, and really, it's a, it's a multidisciplinary um, way that they take care of patients up there. Um, that really gives the best outcome, but it can certainly have a lot of deleterious effects on, on a young child.
1: And I will say that in our state, we are really fortunate to have two excellent, excellent burn centers, and then, of course, a satellite center. So we have a, a very comprehensive burn center in Augusta, we have one in Atlanta, and then we have a satellite at uh, in Cobb, and all three of them accept pediatric patients. So... Yeah, it's hard to
2: come by, especially in the south, you know, up north, they have a lot of more burns in the winter. And even up there, burn centers are are kind of hard to come by. So we are very lucky here in Georgia that it's that that we have adequate burn care. Right.
0: So the last challenge we were going to discuss Uh, is particularly horrifying to Nisa and I. We both have very long hair. It's called the scalp popping challenge. So what a friend will do, or I suppose people can do it to themselves, is uh, take sort of a log of hair, um, a small section of hair, and twist it into uh, into a tight coil, and then yank it as far as, as hard as they can away from the person's head, which causes a popping noise. That's That's what the goal is for these kids is the popping noise. It's kind of cool for them. What is that popping noise, uh, Corey? And what is happening here? Why is this an emergency issue?
2: Yeah, so y'all are terrified. I'm also terrified. I haven't cut my hair in a good two or three years here. Um, And so when I saw people doing this, I was kind of very concerned. Um, It doesn't seem particularly painful, um, to the person undergoing it, they just seem kind of amazed that it made this popping noise. But you know what that's doing is it's this kind of shearing type of pull that's happening where you're just pulling the galea right off of the um, skull. And so obviously you have this galea, which is this thick kind of fascia that's overlying the skull. Um, it's there to cause extra protection and it's what connects the subcutaneous tissue that you need your skin and your fat on your skull down. To the skull to make it one. And it's just kind of popping right off of it. And anytime that you create a space, it's going to fill with something. And so you'll get subgaleal hematomas, I can imagine, in these um, situations. So, you know, the place that we most commonly see this is actually in newborns that have to get some sort of vacuum assisted delivery where they have to put this kind of suction cup on the baby's head to get it delivered in kind of a tight birth canal. And they come out with these large hematomas on their head. Um, but, you know, I think most of the time these could be fairly benign and self-resolving, although I can only imagine that you would get headaches from having this hematoma there that's going to take some time to resolve. But I actually was, was kind of reading into it a little bit and in adults that, you know, have a subgaleal hematoma and I actually found one, a study or a case report that looked at someone whose hair got caught in some sort of mechanical equipment and cause this sort of injury, about 40% of those types of injuries could have an associated intracranial injury with it. So just from the uh, you know, the shock wave of it, you could get, you know, an intraparenchymal hematoma, you could get a non-displaced skull fracture. Um, and you know, I think there are plenty of ways that we can make a popping sound without, you know, ripping on a big lock of hair. So I hope that I hope that this is one that the people have stopped doing.
1: Yeah. I, uh, I also found some interesting things in my research that goes along with yours. The, the neonates, the subgaleal hematoma from the vacuum, they actually have to watch them really closely because the small circulating volume of blood mm-hmm. that they have, if enough of it um, gets into the hematoma, it can, they can be hypovolemic and, be, and go into shock.
2: Yeah, yeah. In the um, yeah, just in case you 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 know you get called to a to a lethargic newborn who might have one. I read that yeah, you can have up to fifty percent of a newborn's circulating blood volume could get into a subgaleal hematoma, which sounds pretty crazy, um, you know, to think about. But obviously, their galea is probably a little softer; it can kind of accommodate more volume. Whereas as you get older, maybe into late teens and adulthood, it, it does become pretty stiff, and so I think you'd get you'd really get it limited. Um, But still, it's going to put pressure on your skull. And like, you know, for those people who have long hair, you know, you can get just a headache from your hair being pulled on by a hair tie all day. If you've got that hematoma, that's doing the same thing. It's just causing a constant pressure on a single spot. And um, surgeons don't evacuate these, you leave the hematoma there and allow it to go away on its own, but it could take weeks to months for it to go away. And so you might just have to deal with a headache for a couple months before these things fully resolve. Wow. Yeah.
1: So one of the other consequences. This is a CT of a subgaleal, probably mm-hmm. in a newborn. Uh, but of course, hair loss that the hair just gets yanked right off the scalp. Right. Um, the other thing that I found that was really interesting, little piece of trivia, was that in some cultures they actually use a, a version of this technique as a treatment for migraines, like a, a certain um, masseuse who <laughs> probably has some sort of training to keep it from being an injury. Um, but they will use the, the scalp um, sort of manipulation in a pulling type way as a treatment for migraines. Um, yeah. I don't know if that has been, you know, researched. Yeah, I'd have to look
2: into that. I, I certainly haven't heard of it. I assume that comes somewhere from, you know, some sort of Eastern medicine type of practices. But I, I'd have to certainly look into that. But yeah, on this image that you have here, you can see you've got this huge hematoma here on what looks like kind of the superior anterior scalp, but then you do have that associated left frontal intraparenchymal hematoma that, that was caused just by kind of, it's probably the shock wave of the galia pulling off and then the bone, even though stiff, reverberates just a small amount and can cause some damage to the brain tissue. And, and you know, most of those are self-resolving, but, but, you know, they can have long-term consequences, changes in mood, behavior, and kind of alertness.
0: So what if somebody did this all around their head? I mean, this looks like something that's been done once, but I, you know. I know
2: yeah, I mean, if someone, if someone got addicted to, <laughs> the, to
0: popping the popping
2: noise, noise, right? The, you know, the more spots that you do it, the more blood loss that you're going to have into that space. And I think if you just did a small little quarter-sized area, you know, concerns for, for long-term issues, it would be nothing. But if you kind of did a large portion of your scalp, you know, the posterior scalp, you are gonna get a pretty significant amount of blood going in there. And that might be when a neurosurgeon would have to talk about doing an, you know, an IND on an incision and drainage and going down and evacuating that blood. And you then have to probably wear a, some sort of binder around your head for a period of time to allow the galea to reapproximate down onto the skull. So, wow. oh my gosh.
1: yeah. So we chose those um, those challenges among a a list of a long laundry list of other ones, mainly because those are the ones that lead to significant trauma, Mm -hmm. but there are uh, many other ones. Um, Lisa, do you want to kind of mention briefly? Right, you know,
0: there was the Tide Pod challenge where kids were eating whole Tide Pods that causes poisoning. We actually had a whole episode with the director of the Poison Control Center who talked about this being a particular challenge that they were dealing with, with people swallowing Tide Pods. Um, Stealing lug nuts and slap a teacher. These are uh, more damage potential damage to other people. Stealing lug nuts would be going up to somebody's car and taking the lug nuts or loosening the lug nuts off of one of their tires, and then sitting back and watching them drive away to see whether or not the tire flew off. And then slap a teacher is exactly what it sounds like, somebody going up to a, uh, a, a kid going up to a teacher and smacking them and documenting the whole thing on um, on their telephones and being able to, telephones, listen to me, on their cell phones and being able to upload them to TikTok.
1: Uh, that one so, was as recent as October of
0: 2021 is when that one was issued. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, those are, those are potential bodily harm to other people. But then when you get to the Uh, to ones like the Benadryl challenge, uh, which is uh, taking an overdose of Benadryl so you can get higher. The nutmeg challenge, where eating a tablespoon or or two of nutmeg is supposed to, um, uh, and then drinking it down, I think with water is supposed to um, um,
1: induce hallucination.
0: uh, Thank you. Yeah, exactly. It's supposed to be like a a drug fix. Um, There was also the cinnamon challenge, which is related to that. It's not listed here, but that causes choking where kids will eat a tablespoon or two of try to swallow a tablespoon or two of um, cinnamon without any water. Um, And so they would inhale the cinnamon or they would choke on it would go down and they'd aspirate it it would go down into their, um, into their throats, things like that. Uh, The choking challenge, um, I think this one's been around for a while. Um, Choking your friend, putting them in a headlock, a sleeper hold um, in order for them to pass out. And then the hot water challenge, just a couple of different iterations of this. One is drinking boiling water through a straw, um, and then the other would be throwing boiling water on an unsuspecting friend. Um,
1: yeah, so uh, so this is, these are just all different versions of TikTok challenges that are out there that we just wanted to mention as well, some of them older and some of them very, very recent. Mm-hmm. Um, and now some of your sentiments in the chat, like, oh my gosh, why are they doing this? This is terrifying. This is horrifying. I want to address that and, and answer that next. So some of the things that TikTok has done, and, and you mentioned this, Dr. Nanamaker, I think before we were officially in the session, is um, these were all uh, identifiable with hashtags, milk crate challenge, hashtag milk crate challenge, hashtag lug nut challenge, whatever. Uh, when TikTok finds out about these and the danger, they ban the hashtags so that, and, and of course, remove any, uh, any videos or any um, instructional videos or how-tos or whatever. Um, and this is one of their ways of policing the system. So as you said, if you go on TikTok now and try to find milk crate challenges, you won't find them there. You have to go to YouTube or news reports or whatever. So this is one of the things that TikTok is doing to try to make it safe. It's almost always a reactive versus a proactive approach.
0: Right, and note, as somebody also, um, uh, tic- TikTok is not just this, I'm not, I'm not endorsing TikTok um, for any of these reasons, but it is a resource also for education and things like that. I'm an artist and I like to follow other artists on TikTok and I've learned a bunch of things that way. So this stuff never comes across my feed, but it depends upon the audience. And there is a lot of it there. TikTok is trying to mitigate it, But their official stance, can you move on to the next slide, please? Their official stance is, you know, it's a little disingenuous. Um, It simply says that they are uh, not responsible for it, more or less that they prohibit content that promotes or glorifies these dangerous acts. And we remove videos and redirect searches to our community guidelines to discourage such uh, content. We encourage everyone to exercise caution in their behavior, whether online or off. So, this is their attempt to dissuade kids from engaging in this behavior. But as long as um, this brand of social media that seeks after um, sort of a modern day popularity contest and seeks after hits and views, um, I don't see this uh, sort of thing going away.
1: So uh, just some information, 41% of TikTok users, of all TikTok users, are age 16 to 24. We mentioned that it's restricted to 13 and older, but we know that younger people are on it. And not just that, if you, um, if you have kids who are not allowed to be on TikTok, whose parents won't allow it or whatever, their friends are still on it. So that doesn't mean that they haven't heard about this. That doesn't mean that they haven't participated in this. And this doesn't mean that they won't be potentially a victim of this. Of course, with the lockdown, COVID-19 um, and kids being home from school and so forth, uh, the TikTok usage increased. Um, and the neurological response that that uh, not just kids, but adults experience when they are on this, this short burst of social media entertainment, similar to addictive behavior. Um, and as we said, there are a lot of good things on TikTok if you carefully curate your feed, which is something that you're now able to do. Uh, but it's not just the challenges that are there that are inappropriate, that, that parents and teachers and, and uh, school nurses are concerned about, but There's definitely strong language, inappropriate song lyrics, sexual content, and a place for cyberbullying to happen. One more. So um, over and over, you guys were asking and we were asking ourselves why. What in the world possesses these kids to do this? And what is it about this that is so attractive? And why uh, do they not realize how dangerous this can be? And so what we know is that they actually, and adults as well, um, will get sort of these dopamine dumps from just watching TikTok, but also in participating in TikTok. This is actual physiological response. And um, Dr. Nonamaker, it's important to note as well that these are underdeveloped brains. These are brains that don't have great decision-making capabilities. That's something that we know about that exact age that we're talking about, from 13 to 24, um, it's still an underdeveloped decision-making brain. Um, So they are notoriously impulsive, and they do get these dopamine, endorphin, serotonin dumps from participating in TikTok, watching it, but even more so with the hopes of getting likes and shares and comments and the potential to go viral. This is just that much more chemical response that um, kids and adults alike are looking for and seeking after when they do this. And of course the higher the stakes are, the more likes they're gonna they're going to receive and the more um, uh, shares and the more chances they have of going viral. Mm-hmm.
2: You know talking about that dopamine circuit it's kind of a snowball effect here you know with these challenges, which is one they get this kind of, dopamine surge while they're watching these very quick videos that gets them addicted to keep watching more videos. And then they see that they can get likes from doing these videos and become famous from doing it. And then they get addicted to that. And then also the actual, you know, acts themselves that get an increased amount of endorphins and whatnot can, you know, can cause you to do things, you know, that we think as adults, you know, we're, we're kind of smart enough to say, oh, I understand the high that you might get from doing this dangerous thing, but pause Let's think about it. Um, they don't have that kind of stop there. They don't have a they don't have a stop sign in their head that says "Let's not do this." And so they just get the high from standing on top of ten milk crates, and then realize that the first time they take a step down, they fall, and next thing you know, they're casted and they're you know sitting at a trauma center for a few days.
1: Great point. That the actual act of participating in the challenge also gives the dopamine mm-hmm. uh, dopamine rush and dopamine dump. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so here's the, uh, the other thing that happens is TikTok can have a stress response as well. So there, are, there is a, an arm of research that shows that when kids get on the TikTok, and if you've been on TikTok, you know that initially when you start um, liking content creators, they're going to give you more of that same content. So very frequently, and this is something they're trying to change with the algorithm because of this you get sort of pigeonholed and you get this very narrow lane where the content that you're seeing is all very, very similar. And so certain types of content can actually have the reverse and can actually cause a stress response um, that has similar physiological impact with adrenaline and cortisol and and there are studies that show that these adolescents um, have developed anxiety and depression from that narrow lane of content creators that they've stumbled onto as well. So that's, what we think is the reason why these kids are doing it. Um, Lisa and I talked about this many times where we did a bunch of stupid stuff as well, because we had those same immature brains at times, there were not 10s of 1000s of people watching. And there was not as much uh, influences, hey, do this, it's perfectly safe. And it'll be really fun and cool. We were mostly coming up with it from our from our own, you know, little social circle or whatever.
0: But it, it was thrilling when our own little social circle of eight kids on the cul-de-sac thought you were super cool for doing it. When you take that, that, that sense of accomplishment and you multiply it by a platform like TikTok or Instagram or Facebook or Twitter, to be honest, they all sort of fall into the same category. You, you are taking something that was already exciting to a young mind and exploding it into something that's a lot, a lot more addictive um, and certainly a lot more widespread. Um, and the, the, the viral nature of this information is why so many more kids are doing it and we're hearing about it so much more.
2: But I just saw yesterday during one of the football games that there is a Jackass 4 that is coming out in theaters in like the next couple months or so. And so that's what my generation watched as well. Mm-hmm. Um, it obviously wasn't as easily accessible, but it led to us doing some stupid stuff, just not quite on a, this widespread of a population. Well, I
1: would say as school nurses and EMS providers, ER providers, you trauma llamas, I would watch it so that you would know what's about to come into your ER because they will be emulating it for sure. Cool. Thank you guys so much for your participation, Dr. Nanamaker. Thank you especially for, uh, for all your expert knowledge and lending to this um, topic. Thank
2: you all for having me. I really appreciate it.